0: You're listening to the EWN Podcast Network.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Judy Cook. Welcome you to Shrink Wrapped, a place where you can work at shrinking your problems and finding more rapture in this wonderful life. Today, I'm just delighted to have as my guest Ronald Chapman, who is author of a book, A Killer's Grace, which is one of the most amazing books I have read, exploring personhood and those angels and demons that sort of attack all of us. So, Ron, welcome, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here.
2: Delighted, delighted to be on and uh, happy to happy to chat about all these angels and demons and stuff. (laughs)
1: you tell me a little bit first about you and how you came to writing this book?
2: Sure. Well, I have been in recovery from alcoholism for many years, and I also happen to be a social worker, although that um, <clears throat> that took place after I got sober. I've been sober about 31 years. <laughs> and um I, I, you know, anybody who is in any way affiliated with the recovering world knows that a fair amount of time and energy goes into exploring life difficulties, angels, demons, troubles, history, um, Mm -hmm. ongoing substance abuse problems, not the one, you know, that that whole, I mean, it's just, there's much to work with there. Yes, there is. And so through my own process of recovery, I... Uh, Ended up having to having to work pretty deeply um, Including a lot of professional help that helped me find my bearings and honestly Judy along the way I became quite knowledgeable on the subject of not just substance abuse, but our underlying psychology and Have become a bit of an expert at working with people's dark side their shadow self and Just to connect the dots to the book Um, At one point, I found myself uh, in correspondence with a serial killer. He was put to death um, uh, some years ago. I can't disclose who he is. His agreement with me to use his material required me to completely keep him anonymous because he didn't want anybody um, who had been affected by his his acts. He uh, raped and murdered seven women. He didn't want any further injury to come to them, and I had a remarkable correspondence with him that, resulted in quite a deep look at shadow self, uh-huh. as well as understanding mental health and understanding um, a, a lot about the neurochemistry of the body. Uh-huh. And so I I, I, I took um, a significant piece of his story and dropped it into A Killer's Grace, which in short is the, the story of a journalist who goes to bat for a serial killer. Uh, and of course, as in all had <laughs> in all plots, <laughs> the journalist whose name is Kevin Fitcairn.
3: Um,
2: was he was uh, he was you know working out his own demons uh, through this process. Um, so so that story then sort of brought me into the into the a larger conversation about the nature of evil and about uh, violence. and I spend a fair amount of time now talking about these subjects, including doing a lot of forgiveness work. so that's that's sort of a very short bio.
1: And where are you with forgiving yourself?
2: Well, you know, that's a fine question, because, you know, <laughs> since everything is since everything is projected, this would make perfectly good sense to you.
3: Uh,
2: I mean, in the end, it turns out that a tremendous amount of our external work is merely a reflection of our own internal work. And so in order to do a lot of this work in the world, I've had to invest a lot of time in my own inner work, my own inner healing. And uh I was recently told that I am remarkably healthy from a mental health point of view, which um I was really I mean, I was I was really humbled and pleased to hear that mm-hmm. that, that that people who know such things could see in me the the result of a lot of this inner cleanup work. So I guess that means I'm quite a ways down the self forgiveness path.
1: I'm so glad to hear that because that is that learning to accept and forgive ourselves is every bit as important as learning to forgive those others around us that we feel did wrong to us. Uh, your book is just a a marvelous compilation of the whole set of stories, you know, the story of the killer and of the families that were affected and the peripheral other fallout and a number of things that happened to Kevin as he's going through writing about this and everything that that really Shows so much the conflicts that so many people have, and I think you and I have both seen this, the whole thing that there aren't very many people that don't have some pain down there that they're dealing with. And one of the big problems is we have so much stigma against admitting to having any kind of emotional pain or conflicts. And in the book, just so beautifully shows layer upon layer upon layer about how this affects so many different people. Uh, It's it's a book that people should read two or three times and and then in a year come back and read it again because it's just such an important lesson about humanity.
2: Well, I tell you the stigma subject. I had a really interesting experience not long ago. Part of my professional practice involves public health, and so I have clients in the public health space uh, from the Centers for Disease Control across a broad spectrum, and one of my client groups works with fetal alcohol syndrome. Oh. Uh, babies that are
3: mm-hmm. that
2: are damaged in utero by their mothers drinking and or drugging and um a very very difficult subject and I got a chance to listen to this incredible uh session on stigma because mamas who hurt their babies are very stigmatized and oh, yes. talk about talk about self forgiveness work i mean that is just huge, but the most remarkable thing about what I learned in tackling stigma was how important contact is Judy. That it turns out we we aren't we aren't very successful educating people out of stigma, um, out of their biases. But what we do have lots of evidence of is when you come in touch with people who have done these heinous things and find out they're human, mm-hmm. it changes everything. It's kind of like what happened when I hate to compare serial killers and FASD with mm-hmm. with, um, uh, with 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 something like like being gay. But the biggest thing that has transformed the gay landscape is the fact that everybody knows someone now, who's gay, because everybody came out of the closet. Well, many of them did. <laughs> and, and, mm-hmm. and, and suddenly, it's not like this is some quote unquote problem that exists out there. It's like it's my cousin Bobby, right? Mm-hmm. Or finding out finding out that some uh, some loved friend. And so w- what the stigma experts would say it's, it, it's the fact that we know people. That allows for the healing process to take place, which is really a remarkable thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so much of the the hatred out there is born out of fear—fear fear of somebody who's different, where they don't understand what they're about or who they are. You know, whether it's their gender identity or their skin color or their religion. You know, there's this this fear that somehow because they're different, they're going to hurt me. Uh, and yet, like you, you know, you reach out and you say, "Oh, yeah, that's my cousin," and you know, he was okay until I found out he was a queer. So maybe he's okay anyway. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. really, really so important to get those lessons. Mm. And, you know, when you and I talked earlier, that whole issue about drug abuse and especially opiates, that's that's such a big issue now. Uh, so is also in my mind, the alcoholism and uh, mm. drug abuse and, and suicides. Um, and we're seeing that more and more in... Not just older people, but children and teenagers. We, we've got to be doing something to spread word and get this changed.
2: Sure. And and just to connect a dot back for uh, for our listeners, um, you know, the, the theme of alcoholism, drug, drug addiction, violence runs all the way through a killer's grace. But but again, if we just use a story like a killer's grace as a springboard into our current reality, uh, I mean, the number of people with opiate addictions is just rocketing through the through the roof. And at the same time, alcoholism, uh, the amount of alcoholism is increasing. So clearly there's something going on in the culture. Um, one of the biggest things that is changing the conversation now is the fact that so, so many people, people we know, um, are coming out of the woodwork, right? And we're finding out, it's like, oh, this, this drug problem isn't some some bad dude in some place it's like it's my neighbor um and so suddenly again contact seeing the effects of it and of course the uh, the opiate epidemic um again one of my one of my public health client groups is working in the opiate space so i see a lot of it up close and personal from that side as well and and yeah it is a, it is a deeply disturbing uh, uh, epidemic that's sweeping the country that a lot of people are uh, i mean they're really hard pressed to figure out how you tackle something like that cuz it runs so deeply in the culture
3: yeah,
1: well, to me, those problems are getting worse. And see what you think about this, but to me, we have so much negativity on the news. We have so much negativity and undermining of people in commercials. We have so much overconnected disconnect. You know, people are in the same room, and instead of talking to each other, they're talking to their their cell phones or they're on their computers, and we're not having that human connectedness that we need that sense of our own okayness that helps us thrive and to me that's one of the underpinnings that that we have to tackle because we can see these more extreme cases where people have been wounded so badly and they don't go out and directly commit suicide they're so out of touch with their feelings they're just burying the pain under alcohol or under drugs Mm -hmm. but that that doesn't solve it and I think we have to start attacking things at that bigger cultural level, although I'm not sure how we're going to do it.
2: Well, you, just from what you said, I'm sure you've been following Dr. Gabor Mate's work around connection, social connection, human connection. And <clears throat> I've, I've heard it now in multiple places. Uh, just over the past year, people people in different settings saying, that the the uh, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety but connection,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, which, which is very consistent with what, what you've said, and it explains to some degree why a large part of recovery, um, and this is not even just substance abuse, but but uh, you know there are so many quote unquote self help groups, mm-hmm. um, groups that come together around um, common common concern common common damage, common troubles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course the connection point for that is that it's an okay place to talk openly about uh, whatever the issue is, whether it's mm-hmm. drug addiction or you know cancer survivors or any number of things. So the idea that, that being able to be connected to not be found flawed, to still be acceptable to the community of your peers clearly connection is a very huge piece of this um and yet it, again as you would know it's so complex we can't just presume oh everybody who has a problem just needs a good friend to talk to that's a <laughs> that's a vast that's a vast oversimplification but but the, the 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 disconnectedness that runs through our lives in so many ways um, it seems to be a root contributor, including you know the, all the all the data that's now being reported about people's sense of well-being being undermined because they're not economically solid and so forth. So so yeah, there's something about being connected, having purpose and meaning that is clearly at the root of a lot of these difficulties.
1: And, and being normal and being okay, and it doesn't matter if the TV says you're too fat. You're an okay person anyway. Um, I had a I had a, a patient experience today. She she called in a crisis hmm. and um, her husband had had an explosive episode and she was talking about sometimes she just hated him. I said, well, welcome to the normal world of marriages. And know, mm-hmm. she says, that's normal? I said, you know, there's hardly a marriage out there where there haven't been times when the partners hate each other as well as loving each other. That's a part mm-hmm. of humanity. And, and it was like, this and she'd been in nursing and things before, but this was new information because she doesn't share her heart. She doesn't have that connectedness at a root level, and the trust in other people to be able to open up and share and and to say, hey, it's it's okay that I have my flaws and my my imperfections. It uh, was really uh, we see so much of that.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that that probably makes good sense to me, you know, with this this. Bringing all these things out of the closet, you know, addiction, uh, you know, violence—I mean, everything—is mm-hmm. that—is that we really do normalize these things? I mean, one of the one of the challenges I think in in the world of psychology and psychiatry and, and the whole continuum of of uh, mental health is is regrettably the tendency to pathologize things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And yet at the same time, being able to understand that there are underlying causes, that there are potential remedies, it's so powerful to be able to acknowledge there's something going on, and at the same time, if we pathologize it, if we make people broken – um, we run into the same problems. I, I used to—I haven't said this in in some years, but you know, I, I used to say, Judy. You know, there was a time when Crazy Uncle Bruce ran down the street yanking his clothes off, and someone would say, "What's up with that?" And they say, oh, "Well, that's just my—that's my Crazy Uncle Bruce. Sometimes he flips out and pulls his clothes off and runs naked, and we just go <laughs> tackle him and put a blanket over him. And you know, by the next day, he's fine. <laughs> kind of like the kind of like the Mayberry, Mayberry, North Carolina." Deal when Otis would get drunk, they would just you know stick him in the drunk tank, and uh, the next morning they'd turn him loose. So, so on, on the one hand, I mean, we, I I don't mean to minimize or make light of these difficulties, but you know, to simultaneously acknowledge that yes, there's a problem, uh, as best we understand to explain it, and at the same time don't marginalize people, because as soon as we pathologize them, as soon as we uh, you know if we 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 remove them from connection. Um, we're we're con- contributing to the same thing. We're 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 marginalizing people, and they lose connection. And the next thing you know, we're just perpetuating the problem rather than solving it.
1: Well, I think the other thing that they lose is that sense of having any control themselves over what they can do about it. You know, what do the pharmaceutical companies put out there? Well, it's it's a you know it's a biochemical problem. You have a chemical imbalance. Well. You know, I've watched psychiatry shift from when we focused on treating people as people and getting a nice, intense history and helping people solve their problems to now everybody just gives a pill as if somehow that's going to solve things. Well, clearly it doesn't. We give, what, $100 billion worth of psychiatric pills a year worldwide. It hasn't solved the problem. Uh, We've got to help people be in touch with their personhood and and solve it at that level and i've been listening to uh, an audio audible book called um, "The Body Keeps the Score" by basil vannerko who 's a very mm. prominent psychiatrist mm-hmm. and and one of the things that is so apparent as I listen to this book is how we have gotten away from this talking to people and getting the history and really finding out. What's going on with that other person as a person, uh, in the medical field. And and I think generally in society. So, you know, how are we going to, you're working in public health. What do we do to make this better, Ron?
2: Well, you know, therein lies, part of this, part of this great challenge is, um, you just use the example of the the magic pill. And, And again, I mean, I, I get it that in many ways, um, uh, psychopharmaceuticals have really i mean for a lot of things they have really improved conditions for a lot of people so it's not it, so simple as
0: you know drugs
2: bad. bad some good um it's really a a, a mixture of all the above mm-hmm. um how do we how do we yeah I remember hearing once and then I'll we'll talk about public health but I remember hearing once that that um <clears throat> a big a big piece of of what we need to acknowledge about recovery from these devastating conditions is you're probably going to need a really good therapist and you're probably going to need a really good sponsor if it's a 12 step program and you're probably going to need probably need a really good addictionologist someone who really knows how to work with psychopharmaceuticals and and you're going to need all of that because a lot of this stuff is not simple uh the part though about public health that is intriguing to me um I'm, I'm sure you've seen the, uh, the data over the past few years about adverse childhood experiences, usually called mm-hmm. ACEs. Mm-hmm. And so where, where I'm enthralled with the ultimate solution is in that space, and for your listeners who haven't heard this, um, it, it, probably the, the, the heightened word we would use for adverse childhood experiences is some kind of trauma. hmm Um, And and we know today that that trauma is not just one big, awful episode. People can – children can be traumatized um, by being told they're fat many, many times.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And and so those early childhood experiences – and typically we think of these adverse childhood experiences being things like being around violence, poverty, um, hunger – uh, and of course, if you're around substance abuse and all those sorts of things as well. And, and so what, what the data is showing very clearly is that if you are exposed to a lot of these, typically they refer to them as stressors, uh, because I think they're afraid of using the word trauma, to be really honest. Um, I mean, it sounds different, right? They, they're, they they have exposure to stressors, not trauma, mm-hmm, but... Mm-hmm. Um, is that what we're seeing is, is is a lot of indication that so much of what we're going to have to do is going to have to go to the root causes, and that involves a whole lot of work that's probably going to have to be done at the childhood level because most addiction, many mental health issues, behavioral health issues, many of them start from these less-than-nurturing childhood experiences. Um, I mean, I'll just use a quick graphic example that that I'm sure will make sense to listeners. I mean, if you're a kid growing up in Afghanistan today, if you've Uh been in the middle of that horrific, high-stress, high-trauma environment, uh, the chances that it will undermine you are actually quite high simply because of the exposure, and so it, 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 that's not going to be something simple to, to solve, but we have to start talking about these underlying contributors that, that mm-hmm. set people up for addiction and mental health challenges.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, there are some things that are much easier to sort out than others. I know in looking at my own history, I mean, I can look at other people and say, oh, gee, it wasn't that bad. You know, yeah, dad was an alcoholic and yadda, yadda, yadda. But the other issue was nothing I ever did was right. If I did really well, I was a smart aleck. And if I didn't do perfect, you know, what's wrong with you? And, you know, there wasn't the warmth and attention. And I kind of like to use the phrase emotional erosion. This kind of stuff can wear away at people over time. And if you think erosion is not a powerful force, think about the Grand Canyon, you know? And it was enough that my brother drank himself to death by 39. So it's not a small force. And and again, helping people connect to that and say, hey, there's not something wrong with me because I feel this way or because I'm hurt. I need to work at finding solutions to get out of this on the other side, find ways to forgive myself, find ways to forgive whoever those perpetrators were, because they were doing the best they could. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the Maya Angelou uh, quote that you had in the book, Um, and I thought I had it written right down here, but, but, you know, people are doing the best they can at the time with who they are.
2: Yeah, she said. Uh, let's see if I can get it right off the top of my head. I did then what I knew how to do when I knew better. I did better. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she's not just talking about head knowledge. This is such a this. Is, I mean, I'm glad we're talking about this, Judy, because it, this is such a controversial space because everybody wants to argue essentially from personal experience. Well, I didn't turn out to be a serial killer. Obviously, they could do better. Uh, or <laughs> I didn't end up. I. I had to take, um, you know, said, I didn't end up a heroin addict. They can do better. the The part that makes this so very, very difficult, and it requires a fairly high degree of of forgiveness practice, um, non judgment practice, is understanding that we're all quite different in terms of our resilience. Is mm-hmm. probably the best word for it. Mm-hmm. and so you can take you can take a couple of you know take a take a family with four kids toss those four kids into the same family system and one of them simply may not have sufficient resilience and they may be damaged by the circumstances um a, another child in the same setting with at least some of the same gene mix has high resilience and they actually end up thriving and regrettably, we tend to look at those t- two kids coming out of the same system, and we, we tend to say, well, clearly that kid just made better decisions, and the other one just needs to straighten up and fly right. But but that's a, that's a failure to understand how these things play out, that, that we yes. can't generalize my experience. I mean, you know, we hear oftentimes in the recovery world, the substance abuse recovery world, we hear people talk about there, but for the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because because there is a deep understanding and appreciation that that I happen to get, um, you know, if if, if I've recovered, if I've made progress, you know, I happen to get a, a, a set of tools and so forth that others didn't have the opportunity to get. And, and then of course someone at some point <clears throat> will say, Well, what about personal responsibility? And and yeah, personal responsibility <laughs> is important. But it's true too. <laughs> But to simply label people good or bad um, based on whether or not they're able to work their way through their difficulties is in many ways to to fail to understand the complexity of these issues.
1: And and to fail to understand that it's a new home for each new person that comes into it because the family complex isn't the same. Um, Mm -hmm. Janet Reutitz in her book, Adult Children of Alcoholics did such a wonderful job of delineating the different roles of kids in an mm-hmm. alcoholic family, something that I recommend with frequency to my chemically dependent people and people who grew up in those families, because, you know, I sat there reading a book and it's like, Oh my God, did you grow up in my house? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, because boy, I, there are so I, many I,
1: differences I, between people.
2: I really relate to that. And uh, Janet Wittes' work was, was some of what I was exposed to. I actually found out um you know about ACA adult children of alcoholics um before I myself realized I was alcoholic. And so so much of that, and in fact a fair number of people I end up spending time with now, the people I work with in a variety of capacities, so many of them are are I mean they're coming out of adult children settings, you know, alcoholic family systems. And um as you begin to look at how trauma transfers intergenerationally and how I mean, there's a, there's a remarkable soup there, Judy, that people are are swimming in,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and and we really can't predict how any one of them is going to going to to come out of it. Uh, and of course, a big a big piece of the solution is breaking the denial for us to begin to acknowledge that these things are going on in families. Um, and I
1: think a lot of it is also giving permission to, to, to have problems. Uh, again, it's, it's that, mm. that saying, you know, it's okay to be human. It's okay to have problems. This is part of the human condition. You know, we all have mm. our things and we can reach out f- for help. I, I mean, it's so important to do that. One of the metaphors I've started using that, that seems to help some people. is like all of that stuff that we get exposed to from in utero on <clears throat> is, is, is so programmed in out of our awareness that it's like the operating system on our computer. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's the background underlying thing and you don't see it there like you see the programs, but if you get a hickey in it, it can really Mm -hmm. cause you uh, some problems and, and it takes some effort, some awareness, some willingness to sit back and say, you know, maybe there's something in my operating system that I need to look at and that's okay. Operating systems need to be updated
0: periodically. Yeah, I,
2: you know that's a really good. It's a really good analogy, uh, descriptor for this, and you know I, I, there is clearly more acceptance um, of um, in utero experiences where drugs or alcohol or perhaps even tobacco are concerned, because we know that it it crosses the placental barrier and the the child is born <clears throat> you know with an opiate addiction or with fetal alcohol syndrome or. Um, I often wonder about the the predisposition for, towards tobacco addiction for, for babies whose mothers smoked, and we know that's not good for babies either. But the place it gets a little more challenging for people to go to, um, although I explain how I think I understand it today, is where um, one's mother's mental health or emotional health or psychological health is compromised.
1: Let's pause here for a brief break. And when we return, we will continue this fascinating discussion with Ronald Chapman about how we become what we are, where it came from, and some of the things we can do to help it.
0: Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of EWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts, at EWN Podcast com.
1: So, welcome back to Shrink Wrapped and our guest, Ronald Chapman, and our discussion on. Even intrauterine issues, which can affect our development,
2: we don't we don't know enough about what the hormones in the body may be translating to a fetus.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, now I'm going to give a really horrific example of this because um, because I think it's very telling, and of course horrific examples tend to be make it easier for us to see it. I was doing some work with mm-hmm. a woman, recovery work with a woman some years ago, who would just I mean Judy she just had a it was an awful life story um, mm-hmm. in every possible way. And we started, we actually did some regression work. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who are listening, regression work is a, a process where we, we um, essentially partially hypnotize people. We regress them and we take them back to re-experience and reprocess and reframe. And so uh, she um, actually in, she ended up in the care of someone who's very, very highly skilled in regression work. And what she ended up telling me when we were debriefing on some of that was that she was able to go back, and um, she had this sense that something in utero was wrong,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and she was able to go back and interview family members. Her mother was her mother was uh, passed away by then, drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And it turns out when she was in utero, her mother used to pound on her stomach and scream, oh, "I hate you! I hate you! I hate you!" Oh. And so, so, so suddenly. What happened for this woman I was working with, who ended up in the in the care of a really good professional? What we were able to finally see was that some part of her operating system, Judy, mm-hmm. had been damaged by the effect of being hated on by her mother mm-hmm. before she was even born. And I mean, when I tell that story, number one, I'm always a little horrified just to hear myself tell it, but at the same time, it brings forth so much compassion for me. I mean. Mm-hmm to the degree that some of this operating system is being damaged in utero, I mean, my God. Um, Absolutely. And of course, and then everybody goes like, bad mommy. It's like, well, no, if you go back and look at her mom's story, I mean, the fact that her mom didn't kill herself was pretty remarkable, actually. Um, Because she, too, had an awful story, you know, generation after generation after generation. And so... Um, when, when I say it's kind of complex, I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like like really (laughs) complex sometimes.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, it reminds me of one of my, my early patients and it was so funny because she had this guy that she was dating Mm -hmm. and her family would say, "He looks just like your father. He acts Mm -hmm. just like your father. Now, Mm -hmm. her parents split up before she was ever born. She had Mm -hmm. never met the man. She had never seen Mm -hmm. pictures of him. Mm -hmm. And yet she had paired up with somebody just like him. And when I started Mm -hmm. bouncing this off of my colleagues, they said, oh yeah, we hear that a lot.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, so there's so much, you know, if you've been around small babies and small, especially small babies, You know, they've got an emotional radar. Mm -hmm. I remember one time my husband came in uh, from school and he put his his arms around me to hug me and kiss me. And all of a sudden, the baby in the other room starts crying. Mm
3: -hmm. You
1: know, nothing other than just that there was an emotional interaction going on and the baby picked up on it and responded. You know, why do kids start acting out when mother's upset and she needs the least for them to act out? Because they're picking up on her emotions, and there's just so much of that we still don't really understand. And it's not that anybody's doing anything deliberately, mm-hmm. but boy, it sure helps if you got somebody helping you put those pieces together and say, "Oh, heck, that's why that happened."
2: <laughs> well, you know, I, I, uh, I, I mean, I, I realize that because of having run into this, this is a great conversation, and and people oftentimes go, "Oh my God, it's overwhelming. It's like terrible. It's like well." Now it's the human condition, <clears throat> as you just said, and um what this argues for is not only us growing in understanding and certainly curiosity is probably my favorite word, because if what we're saying is true, then there's an underlying reason for things. Um there's the basis for good um you know, good psychiatry, good psychology, good social work practice. What we're trying to do is, is is get rid of all the judgment, get rid of all the condemnation, and understand that there are things going on here. And you know, in the best of all worlds, I, I sometimes will tell people if I ever win the Powerball, I'm gonna like I'm gonna like fund a whole bunch of uh, trauma therapists to work in difficult places because we know that if you intervene, if you if you can deal with some of this stuff early on when <clears throat> when it's closer to the insult as it's been described that we we can actually affect the outcomes significantly but we've just never known enough of this in the past to know what to do with it
1: It, it's tough because you know you you try and help kids with stuff well to do that you've got to help the parents and to do that you've got to help the parents see that they're not at fault they just need to grow and understand as well Hmm. and uh so it's this whole cascade of of stuff that has to be done, and yet it is so important. And, and the younger we get started helping somebody, obviously, the easier it is to to turn things around for them.
2: You well, know, it probably going back full circle to something you said earlier. When you think about it with this kind of um, um, perspective, it does make the idea that you could just have someone pop a pill um, look rather ludicrous uh, in terms of a solution. Again, not that psychopharmaceuticals don't they don't have, they have a role to play, but they have a role um, yes. the uh and in the same way, i mean God bless organizations for having e a p s employee assistance programs, mm-hmm. but even the idea that that you can get five simple five simple one hour talk therapy sessions and 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 that should fix it the behavioral <laughs> intervention. Um, you know, just in the interest of full disclosure, I was talking to I was talking to someone not too long ago, and they were they were balking at continuing their therapy, and they were feeling like they'd been doing it too long, and I just laughed. And I said, well, at last, at last count, part of my part of my well being comes from sixteen or seventeen years of pretty significant therapeutic support, in addition to a recovery program, in addition to a spiritual program, in addition to yeah. You know, and and be be more, they'll say say God, Ron, that sounds like a lot. It's like, well, I know, but I just really didn't have any better choices. It was either do this or perish, because I I know what it's like to want to die.
1: Me too, and it's not a nice place, is it?
2: No. And if if this is the kind of stuff that a person has to do to to attain you know some some degree of good, stable health, well-being, etc., then you know I vote for doing this difficult work and for everybody who's got to do it. And at the same time, I have a great deal of compassion. I mean, I I know how hard this is for some of us, but you know it's I uh. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Richard, I'm sorry, Father Richard Rohr, um, who, uh, no, no. He is, he's a Franciscan who runs a deal in, uh, in New Mexico called the Center for Action and Contemplation. He's a pretty, he's a pretty woke guy, as they like to say these days. And um, one of the things that it, he, action and contemplation is one must both take action in the external world and do internal work, and you do both. That that's the path. Mm-hmm and um he likes to say that that's that which we do not resolve within us we will project upon others mm-hmm. and i i think that's the bottom line is that if you if you don't attend to these things within yourself um then it's going to get acted out projected out at somebody in some way usually a tragic way an unfortunate way and so in the end, we're we're brought back to having to having to attend to this stuff. Um, but so many of us can't do it alone, Judy. I mean, we. Oh, no, some, of us, no. some of us need a lot of support.
1: Well, I mean, it's really hard to read the label from inside the bottle.
2: Well, <laughs> that's a great way to say it.
3: <laughs>
1: and yes, we do need somebody from outside. One of the things I do when, when people run into this kind of a roadblock and they've got somebody that's just getting them so upset. And I say, and how do they remind you of yourself? Which they never (laughs) like to hear me ask. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Well, in the in the
3: lesson is you
2: know in the uh, in the recovery rooms. Of course, one of the things that annoys a lot of people these are twelve step recovery rooms is uh, eventually eventually some wise person will say, okay, so what's your part in this? (laughs) And um, that usually annoys people because like, well, no, the problem's out there. It's like, well, you know, the problem is that uh, that you're out, (laughs) you're there too, and you can't. It takes two to tango.
1: If the sun um, would just quit shining, I wouldn't have sunbird right <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's uh, i uh and, and again, I have a tremendous amount of empathy in this space when especially when you run into things where people are um somehow or another call it self sabotage uh people when, when people have ways of operating they continually put them in harm's way mhm. Um, I mean, I realize how brutally difficult that is to look at, especially if it's something that it looks like it's being done to them, domestic violence being a good example. But at the same time, having worked some in domestic violence and, and watched, um, you know, the crazy-makingness of it, that they uh, you, would, you would help someone get out of violence and then somehow or another they'd find their way back to it quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a... It's a, it's a, there's a, there, there's things going on there. So we have to be deeply empathetic, deeply compassionate. um, And we probably have to talk truth to people, including ourselves. um, And, and uh, no small amount of forgiveness, no small amount of understanding work. um, And ultimately we got to work on some of these root causes that that just seem sometimes insurmountable. And yet, you know, if you don't do something, nothing changes, right?
1: Right. Right. And, and and I think the other part of it is it's a lifetime journey, not a destination to get to a healthy place. You know, you're constantly going along and having new events and new things come along that it may be an interaction that helps you explain something. You may finally put some pieces in place. I mean, I'm 76 and a few months ago, I just put together a really important piece about my my own past that not only made me say, oh, my gosh, about myself. But it also had things fall into place for a lot of patients. You know, it was an issue about Mm -hmm. legitimacy. And Mm -hmm. I'm looking at that and saying, holy Toledo. And this is why adopted kids have so much problem and kids from dysfunctional and broken families have so much problem Mm -hmm. because they don't feel worthwhile and legitimate. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, it takes a, a time sometimes before you really can stand back from it or get somebody else's perspective on it. And say, oh, my gosh, yes, that's what's happening. And now I can look on it. And it's really hard to work on something you don't even know is there, which is obviously the role that you and I play in helping people is to help them see it's there so that they can begin developing solutions.
2: Well, in just to, just a second what you've said. I'm 60 right now, so I'm a youngster compared to you, but
3: Child. but um
2: <laughs> but you have you have far more wisdom than I. 16 more years, but uh I mean 5 weeks ago
3: <clears throat>
2: I had one of those moments. I had an epiphany about myself. Mhm. And um, and again, just because I think there's, there's real value in being really, really honest when people are listening to these things is, and I've been a, in a bit of a depression for five weeks. Um, I have enough experience with depression that I, I it's no big deal. I'm I have a therapist. We're working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah. So here I am. I'm 60. I work in this field. I've done a lot of work, and something new reveals itself. Something like you that explains big pieces of the pattern of my life. And suddenly, it's like, well, how could you not know that about yourself? And of course, the answer is, (laughs) because you don't know that about yourself. You can't, you couldn't, you couldn't see it. I mean, there's no fault to be found. You didn't know it was there. You were, you were, you were unconscious Mm -hmm. to it, which, of course, is what Carl Jung would say, that this stuff is all down in there. And up until, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I used to hear myself say about these things as I'd be talking to my spiritual advisor, and I'd, I'd say, how the hell could I not see this stuff? And he was usually very kind about it. But today, it's sort of like, well, of course you can't see this stuff. I
3: mean,
2: I mean, <laughs> how could you, how could you know this stuff without, without this this uh, life process of debugging and recovery and everything else? Some of us must go through.
1: Can you see your own back end without a mirror?
2: <laughs> There's another good example. No. Uh, well, it's also why they say, "Physician, heal thyself." Right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, oh, yes. yeah. Good luck with that.
1: Yeah yeah that's so doctors uh, need to get their own doctors for absolutely <laughs> yeah
2: you know one of the things that, that's interesting about this 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 subject too is the i mean at sometimes it can sound so onerous and at the same time i i mean i always i feel like it's necessary to to say that the the improvements in one's life that come from all this are profound oh, so yes. it's not just all hard work with no benefit i mean i am uh, my God, I uh, I, I am so much more at peace than I've ever been in my life. I am so much more effective in my life and world. Um, I have such access to capacities that were never there before. Um, you know, ta- talking about these things and writing stories about them and all the things that we do, Judy as like i mean it's it's deeply fulfilling work now i have a life that's filled with meaning there's that meaning and purpose thing we talked about earlier oh, yeah and um and it would have never been available to me had had this this effort not been put forward to deal with these things so on the one hand it's sure it seems like a lot and yeah it's difficult especially when you start taking on the challenges of the world but my goodness there's a lot of upside
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean I, I know for myself if if I hadn't gotten in therapy, forget helping other people, I'd have wound up dead. And uh and yet the very lessons that I learned to turn this around are the lessons that I can use to reach back and help my fellow human beings along the path. And that's what we mm-hmm. each do. We we learn and we grow and then we can help other people learn from our learning and we keep learning more ourselves so we can help ourselves and others further up the ladder and and that's just a part of the whole process if we're gonna
2: right.
1: make a better life for ourselves and others.
2: I absolutely agree. It becomes very useful, very meaningful, very purposeful. And um there honestly and this this comes again right out of the recovery rooms, but but it's so true of life too. There is really not much of anything that is much more fulfilling than seeing someone ah. get it. Mm-hmm. and have a uh, a breakthrough in their life um to have things transformed uh, i was just spending some time yesterday literally yesterday with uh, with a young woman who refers to herself as a feral creature and a junkie
3: mm.
2: and um long long 20 plus year heroin addiction and she's wow. she's almost 3 years clean and sober now
3: Good and her.
2: uh we held a little uh, a little small group um uh, deal for her and um she walked away with a bounce in her step because she saw some hope for the first time and um i mean that's beautiful stuff uh, mm-hmm. so so uh there as i said i mean there's a whole lot of upside in this stuff but but you do have to go through a little bit of dark to see it sometimes
1: but you know anything we achieve in life there's there's effort that goes into it it doesn't just drop on us like the rain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we have to uh, be there, and, and you know, we we need to com- not complain about the stressor or the solution. Hold on one beautiful,
2: second. Beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that uh, isn't. Uh, it's not. It's not like what I was expecting. <laughs> I, I had I had a, a well articulated all American plan, Judy, and it just didn't cooperate. So um, <laughs> I, I have i have done done what I needed to do, and uh am deeply thankful for the uh, for the things and the people that have come to me that have made it possible to even talk about such things as this much less live in a healed space
1: and I, I think it's it's so important, and I'm sure you share this with people all the time, but you know you start looking at those things that happen in life that seem stressful or painful or whatever. And you say, okay, what's the lesson I can learn from this? And how can I grow from this? Instead of whining and complaining and, and, you know, just feeling sorry Mm -hmm. for yourself, there's a lesson in it if you let yourself have it. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it feels good. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I know that all of those experiences that I've had in, in the long run, they have been a source of good growth and positive change in life. It just took a while.
2: I would say that that is exactly my experience. I'm actually reminded of um, the Stockdale paradox. Um, Admiral James Stockdale was the highest ranking uh, officer captured in the in the Vietnam War and he was mm-hmm. in prison POW for I don't remember seven years as I recall, mm-hmm. and anyway, long time. And he came out and he asked the question, why did some make it and why did some not make it? Mm -hmm. And his conclusion has been labeled the the Stockdale paradox. And he says that the secret to all of this is uh, we must face the brutal facts of our reality. Mm -hmm. And we must maintain optimism we will prevail against them. And so um, I have found that to be true in so many ways and places is we have to face the realities that we're facing that, that are there and yet, somehow or another, that that uh, non-negativity, as you were describing it, the the optimism that somehow or another we can and will overcome, we will learn and grow from these things, is instrumental as well. And 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 the two coexist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I I think that it it has um, it has framed so nicely for me what you were just saying about um, about how you too have navigated this difficulty and not gotten stuck in the negativity. Mm-hmm.
1: I think one of the other things that you mentioned that I'd like us to kind of discuss a little bit before we close is the whole thing about people's sense of connection and being connected to their life, you know, or losing those connections and not thriving. Because there are a lot of ways that happens. You know, you you brought up before about Native Americans losing their connection to Mother Earth and, you know, kids who are adopted lose their connection to that biological tie that was there. And I think that's a very, very important thing to make people aware of. Some of your connections may break. That doesn't mean that you're broken or or that you're at fault, but it does mean you need to make some new connections and talk about how people can go about doing that.
2: Yeah, well, um, I mean, clearly at a minimum, breaking our isolation, whatever isolation may be. And that can be any number of ways connecting with people, although the more authentic the community is, the better. I mean, there's lots of places you can go and be with people and be terribly inauthentic, and that doesn't seem to help with connection. Um, And to the degree that we can come together with people um, looking deeply and sharing deeply, uh, this is where that really good relationship with a, a really trusted friend I um, it's the role that sponsors play in the recovery rooms. And in fact, it's the role that a really good therapist will play. Mm-hmm. Or a good spiritual advisor is that there's a depth of contact and meaning there. Um, that doesn't mean that, that it has to be a person. I know people who in many ways have established connection. Native Americans are a really good example. Uh, for some of them, it has been, you know, back to culture. Mm-hmm. back to back to mother earth um, which you know I, I mean again it's it's it, it establishes a connection um, i have a I have an acquaintance who um, is a pretty philosophical person and mm-hmm. uh, he's been on retreat from the world for a little while and his connection um, has been to solitude mm-hmm. Um, and he has found deep meaning there for himself. That is, he is connected. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that there's a formula, um, but I, I would say that that those connections, wherever we find them, must have deep and enduring meaning for us. Is yes. probably where I would go with it. Which opens up the possibility that you can find your you can find your your connection through you know your religion of choice if you have one that really serves you well. Um, you can uh, you can find it through community involvement. Um, I have a friend who's very involved in suicide prevention because her daughter killed herself um, five or six years ago, and and that work that connection to this um, suicide prevention space has become deeply meaningful to her, mm-hmm. um, and, and so I, th- I think there's a matter there of finding finding that connection for ourselves and ensuring that that we go that we allow it to deepen um, deepen us and deepen our experience.
3: Yeah, I, I
1: think some people that connection is even it's it's not people. It might be a dog. It might be a horse. It might be mm-hmm. You say connection to nature or connection to solitude, but but that's something where you're finding a fu- fundamental sense of attachment that's positive and, and allows growth mm-hmm. and acceptance is is really really mm-hmm. important.
2: So isn't that interesting? I just had a I just had a click. You're probably way ahead of me on this one. You just used the word attachment, mm-hmm. and isn't it interesting that so much of this stuff goes back to childhood attachment disorders?
1: Absolutely.
2: That we we don't form secure attachments as children because of breakdowns in family systems, mm-hmm. and that connection. Mm-hmm. See, I've got to explore this more. This is like a whole other. I, I could write a book about this one. Is <laughs> <It's laughs> like, a, like, it's like it, is is it, well. Of course, that makes sense, right? That that secure attachment heals yeah. and yeah. supports us. And so wherever you can form secure attachment. It will provide a foundation for us to um, continue the the progress we must make in our own lives and paths.
1: And it's that attachment to a sense of feeling accepted and acceptable, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to you're a piece of trash we should just reject and throw away. That's so important.
2: Well, it, interestingly enough, I was studying—I um, didn't go very far with this—but at one point, I was studying the uh, the dynamics of gang membership. So th- mm-hmm. this is a really important point you just made. Uh, one of the points they made was that a lot of um, gang um, attachment is is essentially negative attachment, destructive attachment, um, mm-hmm. because you're you're coming together out of a sense of. Of, uh, connection but around a set of principles and practice and so forth are actually quite quite demeaning and so you're right it it needs to be something that moves us in a positive healing direction um, if I we're mean, gonna that, get the most of it
1: that that stuff with gangs I mean it, it is all about being accepted and having some boundaries and some limits and some interaction and, and acceptance um, and it's amazing the horrible things that they will put up with to have that sense of belonging.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, that, that attachment, that belonging, is, and that sense of self worth is just so, so critical. So, yeah, I, we, we I, could I could hate talk for,
2: this. Yeah. <laughs> we, could, we could talk for hours about belongingness now, Judy.
1: I, <laughs> wrong. I, I hate that we've got to bring this to an end because I just, I'm so loving talking to you. And uh, it's just been a wonderful experience for me. And I, I hope it's been good for you and, and Absolutely. good for the audience. So
2: yeah, thank uh, you very much.
1: Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. And I hope you've found this interview with Ronald Chapman as enjoyable and as informative as I have. His book is entitled A Killer's Grace. And his website is ronaldchapman.com, R O N A L D C H A P M A N. And of course, if you want to contact me, you can go to GoddardJudy.com. Oh, no, that's GoddardJudy.com. Until next time, I hope you're finding much rapture in your life.
0: Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of E-Women Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN podcast hosts at EWNpodcastNetwork.com.